what is the body trying to do? The body's this highly evolved organism and it's got an innate intelligence, which I think allopathic medicine kind of thinks it's stupid, but it's always trying to do something. So what is it trying to do? So rather than say it's broken, I know how to fix this, which is a, it's a real problem in mainstream medicine, is that first of all, what, what problems is this body trying to address? And what is the innate intelligence of it? And how perhaps has that gone slightly awry? How can I immerse myself in that intelligent process and then try to just redirect it subtly? not be this kind of crowbar to lever it into something where I think it should go. I want to I want to know what it's trying to do and can I help it in any way redirect it. Hello and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today I am delighted to say that I have Ray Griffiths joining me. He is an author, he's a lecturer, he's a speaker, and he has his MSc in Personalized Nutrition. And joining me today is Karen Mannion. She is also a registered nutritional therapist, and we are here to talk to Ray about his story and about his books, and we also talk about the mighty mitochondria. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Ray, thank you so much for joining me and Karen today. It is really a pleasure to have you here on the podcast with us both. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Well, we are here to talk about you, your background. I mean, you've got quite a, you've done a lot of things. uh, And I mean this nicely in in a really fascinating way. And it's, I like to snoop around a little bit. You've got extensive experience as a nutritional therapist you've got a an msc in personalized nutrition you are a nutritional therapist you're a eu credited practitioner you're an author you're a teacher and you're a speaker and we're here to talk about how those things have come to be over time and we're also here to talk about the mighty mitochondria which karen and i absolutely have well we should all have a love affair with really yeah, with this they're embedded in every part of, of us. Uh, uh, what was an alien, uh, they've now taken over and <clears throat> are just a, a vital part of us. And that's just so okay. exciting that, that something that was once bacteria has been completely embodied into every single cell to, I, to make us what we are. It is so true. And, and your book, which we are going to talk about in one of the three books, but in your book about the mitochondria, I, I couldn't. I had to read this and reread it and reread it, that there are 10 million billion mitochondria in our body. How is that? So, and they take up 10% of our body weight. How, I mean, those little things, I mean, it's just so fascinating, but I mean, we're going to jump around. I know our conversation is going to go all over the place, but if you don't mind starting out and just telling us a little bit about yourself, because I think it'd be great for the audience to hear more about you and how you decided to to get into this industry and and what led you here if that is that's okay yeah that's absolutely fine Great. <clears throat> um so 
like many people, my my life experience has, has, has kind of led me in a certain direction. And uh, throughout my childhood, I was like a, an overly sensitive child. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's the way it felt. <clears throat> and I suffered from, from chronic fatigue. I uh, I don't know, just a, the, the world's quite an aggressive place for me, it felt, as, as a youngster, and particularly with parental difficulties. And I remember one... One morning when I was five, my parents had had an argument and I woke up and I couldn't move. Um, I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of bed. And so from that moment on, I suffered from tiredness and fatigue. I wasn't eating that well. I loved eating sugar. Um, so for many, many years, I, I suffered from this fatigue and, and I found it really difficult to, to get motivated to do anything. And it got to a point in the um, mid-90s where... I went to my GP a few times with a whole list of symptoms that I was experiencing, saying, look, I've got, I've got all these symptoms, please help me. And, and he said, well, I can only deal with one at once. So he started at the top and it just, uh, and he, he just didn't have anything to offer. And I just, I, I just, I was persistent and I just kept going back. Look, I'm still no better. What are you going to do? <laughs> it was, he, he, had to, he had to solve it. I wasn't going to do anything. Yeah. Um, and in one moment in exasperation, after about six months of going back to him continually and pestering him, he said, look, everyone's tired. This is the way the world is. Just go away. Stop bothering me. I've got real people, real sick people to see. And, oh and, and I was furious. I was absolutely furious. But in that fury, I just felt I had so much energy. <laughs> and I was just, and then the first thing I did I went to the bookshop and I bought a Patrick Holford book on optimal nutrition. Oh, interesting. So I started, and I picked up Patrick's book and it's like, wow, wow. It's like, yeah, I just, I just kept, I kept, and I just couldn't read enough from then. And um, I, I tried to change my diet too quickly. I went from a kind of pretty much a junk food diet to trying to eat whole food. My body just didn't know what hit it. <laughs> um, I was just so ill initially and I had to back off and then slowly change things bit by bit to get my body used to it and we now know that the gut has to learn to work with polyphenols and work with fiber and stuff like that but at the time my, my body was just lurching all over the place um but yeah and then I, I then I did enroll because I like Patrick's work so much and the way it was so accessible and that's the thing Patrick's brilliant he may not be the most scientific person but he he says things in a way that I could relate to. So I went, I enrolled on um, an ION course. I didn't stick out the ION course because um, around the mid nineties, late, late nineties, they had some real changes there that, that was it's quite difficult. It became a bit like my warring parents um, at, at, this yeah. Yeah. at the time. But um, that led me on to kinesiology and, and then eventually my master's degree um, because I, in the early nineties, um, I start, so bef I had, I did have a diploma, but not through iron. I had a nutritional diploma through, uh, RNT. So I was, I was working with people. I worked with a few people with cancer, but the, the first cancer patient I worked with was a, a Labrador dog. Um, a friend, yeah, I, I was, I, I, I'd been to lots of seminars on cancer and nutrition, I've been to lots, but I was petrified on working with a person, supporting a person. I know with the Cancer Act, um, you've got to be really, really careful. Plus, 
plus there's this person in front of you that, that is really vulnerable and I didn't trust myself initially to work with them so when a friend said look we're going to put our Labrador down do you think there's anything you can do nutritionally because it's got a it's got a tumor it's got a mast cell tumor so I I was just I spent about 100 hours just reading research paper after research paper, seeing whether um, I could apply anything to a dog that was from human research. Well, there's also a lot of animal studies too, strangely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and the dog responded, which was really, it's, it's so exciting that the dog responded. There's lots of polyphenols, um, um, shiitake mushrooms, um, and there's some allergy research products as well that we used and the dog responded really well. Um, but, but sadly about six months later, she ate this huge lump of lard off a bird table at Christmas, oh, including, the net, including the netting. And she didn't recover from that. But oh. for six months, she, she turned around for six months and that was just purely on, I mean, I did personally, I spent about a thousand pounds because the family couldn't afford so oh. the things I was suggesting. So I spent about a thousand pounds on this Labrador. I dearly loved her. I loved it a bit. So it's just amazing how <laughs> dog you, you're working with. And she, she was just adorable. <laughs> so that was a huge motivation for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led me to uh, start lecturing. My experience, uh, Kate Neal at um, CN ELM, I told her about this story. Um, and she said, well, come and talk to us about it. And so I, I put together a, a day, I think it's a morning lecture actually to start with, and uh, it was really well received. And that, so that was the start of my, my lecturing and writing, was that, was that Labrador, Amy the Labrador, oh. <laughs> adorable dog. Um, and um, yeah, uh, so that, that was the start. And then I, I studied for my um, master's degree and I, I did want my dissertation to be around cancer, but Kate said it might be quite a difficult subject because of all the different laws and things to do something on cancer. Is there anything else I was interested in? And I've been consulting with someone um, whose family member had Parkinson's. So I decided I'd, I'd do my uh, dissertation on Parkinson's. Um, and, and the more I looked, the more I realized that mitochondrial dysfunction was heavily implicated in Parkinson's disease uh, and in fact I don't know whether you know but um, people that have the familial form of Parkinson's which is about five percent of Parkinson's um, those familial genes that are mutated are all mitochondrial genes which just just goes to tell you just how much energy is needed in those dopamine producing neurons so wow. that that's the kind of path I've led and then through the dissertation and just the wonderful research that was coming out through Parkinson's research and mitochondria, I was able to get this idea of how mitochondria, not only through evolution, how they've, we've embodied these bacteria, but how they have this cycle of self-digestion um, that we eat our own mitochondria every few days. And if we don't do that, then we start to get more and more fatigue. And if we're having lots of sugar, we've got insulin resistance, that, that um, self-digestion, that quality control fails. And people with Parkinson's, they've lost that quality control, people with dementia, Alzheimer's. So there's lots of lovely little points along the way, um, which I've been really privileged to experience. And 
you kind of have to look back and, and I know you, in hindsight it's 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 perhaps you can see it through rose tinted spectacles but some of the things the experiences we go through can be really can propel us into into something that, that's, that's a benefit and that's what I always try and do is try and turn adversity into a benefit that's what evolution does in fact evolution is all about turning adversity the whole reason we deal with oxygen is through the fact there was adversity there was more oxygen on the planet and so life evolved not to not to be killed by oxygen but to actually evolve to use it and springboard onto the next step so I, I try and take that kind of example. Ray, can I ask, um, you talk a little bit about your chronic fatigue. How long did it take you to overcome that and to, to really crack it? Um, it's been, been stages. I wouldn't say I'm completely over it, uh, but I've got more energy than I've ever had. Um, the, the, the hardest thing to clear was was the brain fog. That's that's the hardest thing. That's so demot- demotivating when you've got brain fog. And I know people with long COVID talk about the the brain fog. And so I, I mean, sometimes the research isn't there to try and understand things. So you do as much as you can. You improve your diet, improve your lifestyle, look at mitochondria, try and improve them. But um, as I've started to <clears throat> understand about these. Uh, immune cells, the resident immune cells in the brain, microglia. Mm. As I've started to understand microglia and neurodegeneration and um, brain inflammation and depression, in the depression book, I I talk a bit about microglia too. Mm. Understanding how to try to modulate those microglia and take them away from their pro-inflammatory phase to their anti-inflammatory phase, that's helped a lot with my personal brain fog. So yeah, everything, it's all about me. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about me. And and I try my hardest then to then take those lessons I've learned from myself and and I write about it. And so everything in my life is just one big diary really. Um, But try to make it in a way that's, uh, that's applicable to other people. I think it was interesting that you mentioned about um, the parental difficulties, I think you said. Um, And there's this whole idea of adverse childhood experiences. Um, So obviously there's this aspect of nutrition, but what else? I mean, we're getting away from mitochondria, so you might want to edit this out. No, 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 uh, it doesn't matter. That's what this conversation's about. Yeah. But have you did you have you used other forms of therapy other than nutrition to help with the because it's it seems seems to me that when you when you have like a kind of like a long term condition you're never getting it done you don't ever get it it doesn't ever seem to be fully healed you're constantly doing the work so what what other therapeutic um, elements are you using for your chronic fatigue I'm quite intrigued. Well, in in some of the webinars I've um, given recently I, I try to address. Uh, those other aspects and they they, they all cut they, they all so all roads lead to Rome really um mm-hmm. that the there's things like oxytocin so so relationships improving relationships so when you improve relationships you get more oxytocin the oxytocin works through the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve has anti-inflammatory effects in the brain and then calms down microglia um it, the there's a whole reflex working through the vagus nerve and the um, it's called the um, the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. So whether we go outside into green spaces, we go spend time by water, mountains, waterfalls, by the sea, um, all these things, I mean, people like to say they feed our soul, but 
in terms of chemistry, they trigger our nervous system to move away from the sympathetic activation towards parasympathetic activation. They activate the vagus nerve, which then calms down our whole body, reduces inflammation. So although those things, like I've, I've experienced, I've, I've gone through hypnosis, I've gone through uh, counseling, uh, acupuncture, kinesiology, cranial osteopathy. I've tried all those things and they, they're all, they're all a benefit. And, and initially I think I just want, I got addicted to trying something new and that was just kind of exciting in itself. So I went through a whole load of practitioners and, and they're all great, but uh, in the end you just have to have to find your own way. And I, I, I mean, I would do things like I'd read a book and I think, okay, I really like this person. I'm going to see if, I, see if they'll see me. And I got into this addictive cycle of reading about something and then paying to see someone privately. I know it's quite expensive, but I loved it. I loved it. I loved, I loved meeting the author. And then sometimes they didn't actually have anything to offer. They, they, they were able to write something, but they didn't have anything to offer personally. But oh, it's just, it's just an exciting journey that I was going through. And um, yeah. So yeah, nutrition's good, but the, the lifestyle, now we understand how being passionate in life just opens up loads of energetic pathways in, yep. in, in our body. Like mm -hmm. particularly um, BDNF, I talk about that in webinars too, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's like an energy management system in the central nervous system. And if you're bored, um, if you're uninspired or you feel put upon or bullied, then you're not going to make enough BDNF and you're not going to be able to energize your brain. So, I mean, the, the, the brain takes up between a, a quarter and a, a fifth of all our energy. It's, it's only about 2% of our body weight, but um, it takes up a huge amount of resources. So it has this management system to, to manage energy. And, it, and BDNF this whole process of managing energy, it will only give energy to where it thinks energy is needed. And if you're bored and uninspired, um, and whether that's your through choice or whether that's just the way you've been forced through life circumstances, it's going to be very difficult to energize that person's brain. Um, I think that's really interesting from um, a behavioral perspective. So, you know, I work with a lot of women who are addicted to sugar and yeah. there's often an element of, emotional you know and an overwhelming emotion sometimes it might be boredom often it's un, you know it's about being on the uninspired and not people not necessarily living with their you know to their values so they are going to have a level of boredom to an extent which then leads them to emotional eating usually it's sugar and mm. then we have this whole cycle of damage and um, you know towards de um, depletion of mitochondrial health that's I'm a really interesting connection. It is, yes, absolutely. That I mean, a lot of addictions in in the Western world are just trying to get this dopamine hit. That, that normally, if if we're inspired, we'd get a reward for that inspiration. You, you'd get a reward for it, and it's it's a healthy reward. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, dopamine that if if we are stressed, but we get this reward. The dopamine has a way of of taking the edge off the damaging effects of cortisol, but if you're stressed without that reward, then cortisol is extremely damaging. 
So people might resort to things like sugar and alcohol and cigarettes and other drugs mm -hmm. to get the dopamine that they're not getting from um, their, their life circumstances. And I, I've seen a couple of Parkinson's people recently who are absolute sugar addicts. They've been sugar addicts all their lives. And that's going to be catastrophic for mitochondria. That's going to be it's going to drive up inflammation long-term in their body. Um, it's going to cause gut issues, mitochondrial issues. So yeah, you're, exactly. You're right. Yeah. It's the, the classic pacifier. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it really? Um, gosh, I mean, there's just so many questions, aren't they really? Deb? Where yeah. I was going to say, where, where do you want to go, Karen? I, I mean, just as an aside, I love that you referred to Patrick Holford because I think he, you know, one of, I'm, I can't remember if I had his book when I was in the States or not. I mean, my, my journey of starting getting interested in improving my health and well-being was back in the 90s. And I also had chronic fatigue, as I had mentioned earlier. And I had a different experience. I had a doctor that was, would have been considered probably, well, back then when I was seeing him, I was really unwell. I had pleurisy. I don't have a spleen. So I would, my immune system was a wreck. So I was getting sick all the time. And he said, he just said, we're going to get you well. I mean, he was amazing. So I had the complete, I was a, a fantastic mystery for him because oh. I would go out. And if I was around anyone that had a cold, I was sick. A half an hour later, I was on the floor. I was just so ill. I couldn't do anything. And um, he just made a huge transformation in my life. He made a few errors, <laughs> which were, you know, a little bit uh, ropey at times. But, I mean, he was really switched on for his time. So, I and I think that I read one of Patrick Holford's book when I, books when I was in the States or either when I just came over here. But it's funny how he reaches so many people's lives and he kind of hits yeah spark regardless of how in-depth it is or not but I did miss a second GPO actually so after I lost my temper with the first GP well I didn't, I didn't lose my temper I just went out in a huff and then kind of used the internal fury to motivate myself but I, I changed GP to a second GP who was far more like your GP um, and I took all the research in that I was looking at and, and he was really fascinated by what I was bringing in. He, he was really fascinated and we started sharing information, the second GP. Then after a year, he he retired as a GP and started to be a homeopath. And I, I thought was, it's really, uh, it's absolutely, it's, I don't know, just that we had a lovely year together just sharing information, completely different experience. And then he goes off to be a homeopath. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. That's amazing. Um, I am really quite intrigued by the development of tumours. So the, the development of tumours and anaerobic respiration. Mm. So in your, I think it's maybe your first book, um, Mitochondria. Mitochondria in Health and Disease. Yeah. You talk about anaerobic respiration mm. being the preferred um, form of respiration for proliferation and also mm. inflammation. But at some point, once the helium is resolved, then, you know, life can go on and hopefully aerobic respiration continues. But it seems that in disease, so things like, you know, tumours, cancer, fibroids, things like that, it doesn't get resolved. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you can go about, because this is personal now, because um, obviously I had fibroids and I'm just quite intrigued because I, I found um, a particular marker called lactate dehydrogenase. 
mm. which um, was to, which was a, a test that one of my doctors did, um, and it was high. And I guess that's a production of a product of um, anaerobic respiration. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you can go and discover if, with clients, how you go about discovering if they are going through, you know, some chronic inflammation or pain, what specific markers would you recommend they go? Well, I would go and look for for them to, to understand a bit more about what's going on with their physiology. Well, it's it's, it's really just chron- chronic inflammation that, that you're looking for. So, you know, things like, c-reactive protein is, is is one of the big ones you said lactate dehydrogenase as well um that that's an important one although lactate dehydrogenase could be also the fact that there's um necrosis of cells or pyroptosis is something else that that, that occurs as well where cells through inflammation cells are breaking down and releasing normally intracellular enzymes into the extracellular medium so that that, okay. that, that that lactate dehydrogenase could be high because, as you say, because of anaerobic respiration, but it also could be because cells are breaking down. So okay. we're seeing we're seeing those things, um, like you might see um, alanine transferase and uh, aspartate transferase as well. You might see more of those as well. Um, so when, when cells when cells are breaking down, so, and I think, um, yeah, they might also see um higher levels of neutrophils for example in in someone's blood so that there's something called a neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio where you take the 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 measurements of neutrophils to to lymphocytes and if that's raised you usually got a a really uh, inflammatory process i think it's above around 2.25 2.5 i think is the ratio where you're starting to see there's a quite a chronic inflammatory a process going on and sometimes that neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio can be um more sensitive than the c-reactive protein sometimes um yeah erythrocyte sedimentation rate also that can be be something that's, that's helpful um but then you can get into some of the some of the genova tests and great planes i'm not sure if there are any more use for things like chronic inflammation i'm not sure if there are any more use than the normal blood test from the doctor or have you heard of diagnostic dx that they've been doing some good tests as well yes i have yeah yeah what they do is that they a lot of the doctor's tests that you get um the standard deviation from for the reference ranges uh, are quite conservative so I mean, the NHS can't for I think that I think that if you've got a standard deviation of I think it's two, you're assuming that about 95% of the world are healthy and 5% are unwell. Whereas that's not really the case. If you're looking for a chronic health condition, you want your standard deviation to show um, things that aren't optimal rather than out of re- reference range. And that's what that's what um, Jonathan does at Diagnostic DX. He, he takes the suboptimal ranges, which gives a far greater picture of things that are not going that well. So you can get errors in iron metabolism. That happens in cancer too. You get, er- you get errors in iron metabolism. Iron can be quite inflammatory. And we, we know, I mean, we, we often think about fatigue as a supplement. I'll just give that person iron because we need iron for hemoglobin and, but iron is such a difficult supplement to give because we now know that you've got disordered iron metabolism in cancer, you've got it in neurodegeneration. 
and iron's vital for life. And if someone's anemic, then definitely we need to give give iron. But the forms of iron and 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 being too gung ho about it. If 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 we realise that iron can drive proliferation, and we we think about that more clearly, then we'd be more cautious. And I, if I do have to supplement iron, I mean, lots of the, lots of the research or lots of the lots of the teachings that we're given is that you you give iron with say um, a scorbate to make sure it's you don't take you don't drink tea, and you take it with a scorbate to make it more easily absorbed well because it's so proliferative and so inflammatory i would rather it's more slowly absorbed and for a person to drink tea with it so that any any excess iron is not flooding around the person's brain or around their body and driving inflammation i want to make i'd rather they absorbed it more slowly and safely than increase absorption and there's always this kind of push that we want more absorption, want more absorption. No, I want things to be absorbed more naturally. And the yeah. thing is, the supplement, you've got a bolus of a supplement, which is unnatural. We're not used to getting nutrients in that bolus. It's not, it's not natural. And most of the time it's okay. But things like particularly calcium and iron, that bolus is quite difficult for the body to deal with and put away safely. And if someone's got inflammation and, and cancer, I, I, I just want to make sure that they've got more of a chance of putting it away safely so it can't drive inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, with, so with calcium, again, calcium is involved in neurodegeneration. It's, it's important for bones. I know that, but I want to make sure that they can take it safely. And I probably, if they were taking calcium, I'd prefer them to, to have it more in maybe a liquid form so it's it's more diluted we do know that anyone that takes a calcium supplement apart from a couple their blood levels of calcium go too high for they get this short spike of excessive blood calcium um and strangely people that are deficient in calcium get bigger spikes people that are more repleting calcium get lower spikes so but the natural thing to do is to see a, a result to say, oh, this person's low calcium, give them lots of supplements. But they're the, per- they're the people that are most at risk from these calcium spikes. So I'd say definitely make sure if someone's low in calcium, look at their diet first. Make sure that they're getting plenty of calcium in their diet to try and raise the levels there first. So, yeah. That goes with the old mantra of go low, go slow, really, yeah. of going yeah, in and starting absolutely. with the nutritional bit to see how they can manage things because uh, absolutely, know, yeah, just, just treat people with kids' gloves and don't see them as a number that you have to get. And so often, and that's the trouble with these lab tests sometimes, you just get this these numbers and you think, okay, I'll just get the numbers right up then. That's all I need to do. But without really, because I know how sensitive I am. I know that. That's the worst thing for me to do is to say, I'm lowering this, ramp it right up to the right level. It's just disaster for me. And I, and I see this in other people too. So I, I just try and keep, try and treat people gently. Mm. I'm really intrigued um, in your book. Again, you talk about um, heme synthesis happening in the mitochondria. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I often have women who say, oh, I've always been low in iron. 
And so they have these iron supplements. And it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, don't don't go gung ho and give these iron supplements. Understand what is going on, on overall. And I think what's really interesting is that if somebody perhaps has got some form of insulin resistance, so they may not necessarily be making heme very effectively because there's <coughs> some kind of dysfunction in their mitochondria. You know, giving these supplements of iron might not be the best thing because the problem might be in synthesizing of heme potentially. Yeah. Yes, that, that that could that's a it's a very good point and it is a potential problem. Um, there's there's something called the Fenton reaction. I don't know if you heard of the Fenton reaction. Um, so um, people with iron issues that that iron will if it's not held safely in iron transport proteins like transferrin or ferritin then iron, free iron can drive the Fenton reaction and make uh, these free radicals called hydroxyl radicals, which are really damaging and can lead to um, issues, like protein misfolding, which is, which is linked with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So iron is incredibly damaging if it's not held safely. Um, there's also something else. There's um, heme is broken down. So when we have inflammation, there's, there's, a, there's an enzyme called heme oxygenase. HO, HO1, and it's an anti-inflammatory enzyme. So when we've got inflammation, we naturally break down heme to help fight uh, inflammation. It's, it's an anti-inflammatory uh, mechanism. So it could be that someone's got excessive inflammation. And then if, you're, if that person is suffering from excessive inflammation and, and then we, we give them excessive iron, they could be driving more inflammation, which breaks down more heme, and you can get this cycle as well. So, yeah, you just – I always think – what is the body trying to do? The body's this highly evolved organism and it's got an innate intelligence, which I think allopathic medicine kind of thinks it's stupid, but it's always trying to do something. So what is it trying to do? So rather than say it's broken, I know how to fix this, which is a, it's a real problem in mainstream medicine. It's that first of all, what, what problems is this body trying to address? And what is the innate intelligence of it? And how perhaps has that gone slightly awry? How can I immerse myself in that intelligent process and then try to just redirect it subtly, not be this kind of crowbar to lever it into something where I think it should go. I want to, I want to know what it's trying to do and can I help it in any way, redirect it in, in a direction because yeah, like we talk about cancer, I mean, cancer is the body's got an innate healing ability. And when we get injured, um, we can't wait for, for, for things to, to happen, like various gene expressions to occur or mutations to occur. The body's got this spring that when we get injured, it moves straight into inflammation to heal that wound. It, it proliferates. If you, if you cut yourself, you need to have proliferation. We need to have proliferation occurring instantly. Mm -hmm. Those, uh, we're going to bleed to death. We're going to, we, we, we can't, we have, to, we have to have this inbuilt proliferation. And it's, a, it's, a, it's just an uh, innate intelligent process. Um, but if we keep injuring through whether it's toxicity or, or a diet or whatever, then we're putting our, ourselves into this, what was initially a healing process into a proliferative process. There's that continuum between uh, excessive healing 
and excessive proliferation because it becomes more and more difficult to rein in that proliferative process. But it's initially a healing process and it keeps us all alive. Um, and just trying to, rather than demonize um, this excessive proliferation, just recognize it as a healing process that's gone awry because of the terrain, the environment that we're putting it in. Mm. Um, I think we tend to see oh, cancer or proliferation as an evil thing, but no, it's a vital life-giving process that's embedded in all of us. I always say we are the most fascinating, amazing machines out there. We're not really a machine, but it's just, I love the complexities of, of what we are and who we are. And the more I read uh, about, about our bodies, the more intrigued I become. And I, what I, what I like about your process is, of course, you're, you're looking at it from the, the whole, not just, not just pinpointing one specific thing of saying, oh, they've got cancer. You're pulling out and looking at the whole body. But now it's that integration that I think we're finding more and more of our lifestyle and our essence of who we are and our time for taking care of ourselves and that self-care and how they are so heavily involved in our, in our healing process, in our well-being. And I'm guessing that that's your own evolution for yourself of your own helping your body, that that's where that's gone. Is that correct? Of just saying, Oh yeah. 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 yeah and, it's, and it's led me to, to write about it more and want to teach more and, I do love seeing clients, but it's such a time-consuming process that I find if I see more than a handful that I have nothing else, I have no other time to do anything else. And I, I love this self-exploration, teaching and writing, and it, that takes so much time too. And, and and so it's just trying to balance how much time we, time I have personally every, every day, every week. Um, yeah, and this year has been really, really busy with webinars and teaching and uh, so yeah, it's just how much, and and then leaving time for other activities. I'm a I'm a really keen water skier. That's um, are you? I'm a passionate water skier. Yeah, I, my body needs that. It's it's got a mixture of aggression because I'm quite um, I suppose I'm quite an introvert naturally, and it it allows me a safe space to release aggression where I don't feel that um I'm it's, I'm I'm not safe. It's funny you can do things that are perhaps not that safe, but feel safe because you can. It's funny how I feel more unsafe releasing aggression than I doing than doing something that is perhaps a bit physically dangerous. Um, I used to I used to race motorcycles. I used to uh, race race motorcycles and had a few head injuries that way. I, I because I was so introverted, I needed to to release this pent up energy inside me um, that was exploding inside me, and I and because of my environment i didn't feel safe releasing that energy i feel i feel safer now but it took a long time to release that part and and, and it's amazingly energizing but but dangerous so <laughs> it's it's life's life's amazing but um yeah that's my journey you're a gray-haired daredevil <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's really interesting about the um about needing to to release all that energy. I guess if I guess if you keep it in, there there's a level of reactive oxygen species, right? A level <laughs> of stress that happens. Yeah, you destroy your mitochondria through the the, the the cortisol that's building up. That repression. It, well, that yeah. cortisol that's building up because you can't express then starts to literally eat you up. 
eat you mm-hmm. up inside. People say that, but yeah, the, the high levels of cortisol, but by not being able to release that, that stress, then will damage mitochondria. Um, yeah, so people will feel, and it's amazing how energized I felt. I felt I had no energy. Then I did these things where I felt I could release that anger and that frustration and then felt energized. And that's a, I suppose I've used that now to, to, to guide me what, what things energize me and then follow that path. That's really interesting. I really, I really like that approach. Does that lead you down to to more research and in investigating why? You know, why is that? Or you just you say, I'm just I don't care. I just love that feeling, and it's amazing. Because I mean, we 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 all know that feeling when you start doing something and you're you just have there's something inside of you that just feels so free, and it is the most fantastic thing. Do you then come back and feel compelled? I got to go and and research this a little bit more and understand and pick through it, or do you just go? I just enjoy it. I think it's a combination of both. I think you can go if, if you're not careful, you can go down um, euphoria-induced <laughs> rabbit holes if, you, if yeah. you're not careful, and it, it's, it takes a while to recognise you're doing that. Yeah. And think, oh, why am I here? Oh, and and so just and I think that's the good thing about doing the MSC that it it, it de- helps you develop a mental discipline, right? Um, that uh, perhaps I didn't have before. Um, yeah, and then when you've got the, the the tutors just trying to just get you on the straight and narrow again, and you resent it, he said, "No, I, I love this bit. Why should I write about what you're telling me to write about? I love this bit down here." Yeah, but that's not the question we've asked you. So, um, yeah, there's there's a bit more discipline there. But yeah, so it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of being um, inspired by by something but also having the dogged determination to to work through something that perhaps you're not that keen on as well, knowing at the end that this could be an important thing to stick with. Otherwise, you'd never do anything. And is that what led you to writing the three different books? Do you think that you, as you were doing these, um, doing the research and finding this information, you thought, I, I just want to explore this more and share more of this information because you've written a book on depression. You've written a book on, of course, the mitochondria and Parkinson's. And I can see where Parkinson's came in since that was what you you did your master's on. But I just thought it'd be interesting to hear about that and I hear about that. And I also know Karen's got some other questions she wants to to ask you as well. Yeah. So well, I've got a couple of questions, Ray, because I'm sure I was in your one of your lectures, and I'm sure it was you that brought up this concept of um hedonism versus eudaimonism. With with do you remember that? Don't think no. that we know. No. But oh, okay. All right. Explain, explain what you mean. Um or- so, so hedonism is about um seeking pleasure from selfish pursuits such as obviously eating lots of sugar drinking lots of alcohol gambling shopping all of that stuff and udemy is seeking pleasure for the greater good of human beings so it's about having a purpose doing things for the greater good so it's you're you're getting that dopamine hit but you're getting it from a very different in a different way through udemy as opposed to hedonism so all this this whole yeah i think it's somewhere in the middle i mean i've i'm very aware of the damage of greater good as well because um just in the present political circumstances as many people in politics that are are wreaking immense harms on people through what they believe is the greater good and so it's that sometimes i think the 
with the greater good, you can ed- edge towards a totalitarian state because you so believe in the, the good of what you're doing. And I think, and the other, the hedonism, that's the other side of that is the libertarian kind of person that's really, really selfish. And I think that perhaps with my fatigue, I got into too much into the greater good. And it's really strange though, because I I got into the position where I felt I was more, I was better than everyone else because I was more humble than everyone else. So I had this kind of reverse narcissism that by being in my fatigue, it's like I didn't deserve stuff, but I was better at not deserving stuff than other people. So I've got myself into real, and I can see this in lots of other people. So that the libertarian side of stuff, the head, I, I some people, uh, and I, I like to see it in the, um, in Freudian, they got the id and superego mm. side of stuff. You can see the hedonism in the, in the id, and you can see in this superego, I'm not sure where I it is. One, I think the id is more the hedonism isn't it and then you've got the superego which perhaps looking for the greater good and stuff and suppressing the id so it's balancing the two really it's balancing the two i'd say exactly as you're saying but i'd rather be in the middle where um i have that libertarian side of stuff that by valuing me i value others i don't in the greater good i don't dismiss my own needs but there's other people perhaps need a, a different balance because of their own background. Other people that are hedonistic probably need to experience understanding empathy and the greater good more. So I don't, I don't want to polarize it because every, everyone is different. And, mm. uh, and it's, it, it's really, really difficult. Um, but those, those two energies are so important to be able to find the balance within ourselves. Um, I look at the, do you know about, um, the, uh, is it the Odyssey? Homer's the Odyssey, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where, where I think Odysseus straps himself to a mast, and the sirens are, are calling him. So I see the sirens as the id. That's the hedonism, and the mast is like the superego. That's the strict. That's for the greater good. Now I've got to do things for the greater good, and the greater good could be some come so restricting, like this wooden mast you can't move. Mm. But then if you go far too much towards hedonism, you smash yourself on the rocks. And, and it's it's finding the balance between the restrictions of the superego and the hedonism. We need some degree of hedonism to enjoy our lives, be passionate about stuff, but not so much that you end up destroying yourself. And that, that's what I'm playing with all the time. Well, that's the beauty of balance. I torture my partner all the time and say, it's a balance, it's a balance. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's interesting. So, so let's put from that perspective, it's really all about, about how do we manage our energy in a way that just I guess maintains our mitochondria and keeps keeps them balanced you know yeah. keeps the, the right amount of yeah our mitochondria um I mean I, I liken st- stress is like a call for resources so we need a certain amount of stress I think they call it you stress it's, it's a it's a fine balance that if we have insufficient stress we get boredom Mm. we get excessive stress it's distress but we got new stress and we we need a certain amount of stress but a stress is a call for resources and if we push stress levels up too high um then we deplete ourselves of, of resources and then we start to get particularly mitochondria breaking down mitochondria they 
mitochondria thrive on a small amount of stress and they'll respond to it they give us more energy but get to a certain point and then they can't give any more you must know that yourself like someone's asking something of you and initially you want to help out and you're really pleased to help them but then they keep asking more and more of you and you're like oh my god how much more do they want i haven't got yeah. anything more to give i'm well, tapped out yeah 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 i might have called you say that so i've given you all i can give i've got nothing more to give that's it i'm out of here hmm. um and that's what that's what they do yeah um, um okay so deb i'm going to ask this question about non-shivering thermogenesis so ray and Yes. So last year I I got an opportunity to um, give a talk. There was a whole thing around Black Lives Matter um, and I had to give a talk on it was called Nutritional Diversity. And I found this really interesting paper which talked about the uh, migration of uh, white people out of Africa. And um, in order for them to thrive in colder climates, they developed this uh, gene called the um, uh, well, they developed a gene that allowed them to survive in and adapt to cold so they've got this cold adaptive gene um, and they've got a greater amount of brown adipose tissue, which allows them to go through a process called non-shivering thermogenesis, which means that they're able to just generate a lot more energy in colder climates and thrive in colder climates because they've got this brown adipose tissue. And in the paper, you know, it concludes and says, you know, we know that white people have this BAT, but there's not enough research to suggest that black people have it. But because of the this, this idea that, you know, this brown adipose tissue generates energy in colder climates, white people have this greater ability to, you know, to, to thrive in colder climates, their mitochondria work better, and they have less incidence in comparison to black and brown people of type 2 diabetes, uh, cardiovascular diseases, metabolic um, kind of uh conditions um could you speak of what you know i know this might not have been something you've ever heard of but could you speak of how what you think just in your uh, from your knowledge how you think that um from an evolutionary perspective um our mitochondria have a, a big impact um with regards to our color um yeah, I mean, I, it's not, as, uh, before you mentioned it, it's not, I mean, I, I know about brown adipose tissue and know about this beige uh, adipose tissue as well. There's, you, you've got the browning of white adipose tissue. So there's a limited, um, there's limited places in the body where we have brown adipose tissue, but we do have the ability to convert white adipose tissue to beige adipose tissue. Um, the, it's new to me what you said about genetics and how there's adaptation. So I haven't heard of that before. What I do know is in brown adipose tissue and beige <clears throat> adipose tissue is there's mitochondria are effectively short circuited to so that they don't fully make energy. But that 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 eight, rather than ATP, they're making heat. So there's like a short circuit in mitochondria to do that. And so in the brown adipose tissue and the reason it's brown. And the reason it's beige is because it's more mitochondria. That's, that's why it's that colour. It's that colour because right. of the mitochondrial content. So right. we've got white adipose tissue, which hasn't got much mitochondria, but by doing things like cold exposure. But it's not just cold exposure that, 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 that leads to improve. And I don't know whether this would af affect people from a different ancestry. Um, but also... <clears throat> Do you know about um, NAD and the sirtuins, the, the anti-aging proteins? Have you, have you heard of those? A, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. Well, the, 
these anti-aging proteins, the sirtuins, um, they're, they're amazing proteins. And they these anti-aging proteins kick in when we go through calorie restriction, when we eat a healthy diet, when we exercise. And the, the anti-aging proteins rely on something called NAD. It's a, it's a kind of form of B3, mm -hmm. not, not NADH. NADH is the energized form. It's the de-energized form, NAD, which triggers the anti-aging proteins to help uh, turn white adipose tissue beige. So, so you, can get, you can get an increase in mitochondria in adipose tissue to make it, it doesn't go fully brown. It's kind of a, it's beige. You, you end up increasing mitochondria. Um, and it relies on these, these sirtuins, these anti-aging proteins. And uh, so the, that's, that's yeah. interesting. So if you've got, if you don't have any BAT, so if you're somebody of color who's got less brown adipose tissue, uh, a way of actually getting an increased number of mitochondria is by going through calorie restriction. And I think you mentioned exercise in your book as well. Would you, would yeah. that be right to get these yeah. sirtuins, to increase yeah. these level of sirtuins? Exercise, yeah. But it's a, it, it goes in, there's this natural process of, that humans live four times longer than they should do for a mammal of our size. So, and, and it, we, we frequently hear of how bad um, reactive oxygen species are and how there's this continual adversity in our lives. But I think we, we also have to look at the fact that we live four times longer than a, a mammal of our size. And, and that's because we're good at these anti-aging processes. We're good at dealing with reactive oxygen species and actually living with reactive oxygen species or using them to drive anti-aging processes. Um, and the sirtuins are part of this. We do, we do this really well. These anti-aging proteins, we, we do really, really well with expressing them. But what undermines them, what undermines this evolutionary longevity that we've developed over thousands of years, what undermines it is the Western diet stress, mm. poor, yeah, poor diet stress, um, inflammation, all these things are getting in the way of our innate ability to live a long life. I mean, we're designed now to live around 100 years if we, if we look after ourselves. And the reason people are getting these chronic health conditions is because they're not following the innate intelligence of, of our body, which is designed to live uh, a much longer life. Um, so, yeah, and these the sirtuins will help with the browning of adipose tissue, which will definitely help us burn up energy, protect against insulin resistance. I don't know whether that is any issue with that beige, adip white adipose tissue to beige. I don't know whether there's any issue with uh, genetics, say from, from your background, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, it's just something that's quite new to me and I'm just quite in intrigued, you yeah, know, and um, I just think uh, it would be good um, for, for people of, you know, of colour to understand a little bit better uh, about this if it's something, you know, that needs to be researched a little bit more because it could save, you know, a lot of money on the NHS, for instance. You know, people would be getting a yeah. lot less ill because they would have an understanding perhaps a little bit more of, of how to eat because of their genetic background and their, you know... And, their and vitamin D as well, and vitamin yes. D. Uh, yeah. And interestingly, that so with with high, high levels of skin pigments, and I've... Um, clients that I've seen that have come from India or Africa with uh, with higher melanin content in their skin that they everyone's presented with very very low levels of vitamin D and and their 
their their health has improved dramatically just by gradually increasing their vitamin D levels. And also I, I mentioned about the sertraline's the anti-aging proteins. You can get vitamin D levels up, but I mean, people that are obese struggle to get vitamin D levels up. There's something that undermines their absorption of vitamin D or it gets trapped in adipose tissue, I don't know. But there's also the vitamin D receptor, which gets undermined by inflammation. Um, it also, it needs to have, the anti-aging proteins need to activate, the sirtuins need to activate the vitamin D receptor. So it's not just making sure you've got sufficient vitamin D, the vitamin D receptor needs to trigger the gene expression. It's how it's being used, utilized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so you need, Always. the vitamin D receptor needs to be looked after as well. And these sirtuins help switch it on. Inflammation, get inflammation down, helps switch it on. Lowering your body mass index helps switch it on and raise vitamin D. So it's not vitamin D on its own. Um, yeah. and, and then we have the issue with vitamin D. Sorry, I just remembered about, about, about it can, excessive vitamin D levels can undermine calcium metabolism and can lead to excessive calcium in the bloodstream. So I always suggest vitamin K with vitamin D to avoid the calcification of soft tissue. Vitamin, mm. vitamin K actively discourages calcification of soft tissue. That's interesting. Um, and Ray, you talk about a little bit of stress um, being good for us, you know, being good for our mitochondria. Um, so what, how would you define a little bit of stress? I think that's, that's going to be individual, <laughs> individual for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, it's a difficult question. And, and, and definitely, if, if, if you're inspired when you're, that stress, if, if you're inspired with, with what you're doing, like, I'm I'm mildly stressed today because of the meeting you two, and I'm I'm loving talking to you both. So I'm getting a bit of a a reward, a dopamine hit. I don't feel like I'm overly stressing myself. I don't feel I'm depleted in any way. Um, so definitely, if you're doing something that's mildly stressful, but you're really enjoying it, then then that's going to be a benefit. But if you're involved in something that's stressful and you hate it. That's going to be calming you. But also if you, if you do something that you really enjoy, but, but it's stressing, but for too long, hmm. um, that, that you'll come down with a thump and you probably experience that too. You think you can go on forever. You just keep doing it and doing it. And you think, oh, I've got endless energy. I've never had so much energy. And then you stop the activity. And the next morning you wake up and you feel like, oh my God, what's hit me? I can't, I can't move. You've got a train sitting on you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it's individual. And I know with chronic fatigue, even doing things I love doing, initially I, I had to regulate it and know that I had to stop well before I thought I'd run out of energy because the the delay in that fatigue can be can it be, be a, a day or, or more. And you think, mm -hmm. oh, what did I do two days ago? Okay, that's what happened. I just took too much. But this is this wonderful thing, uh, again, with the whole... Um, longevity thing is we that humans are really good at something called hormesis um, it's a little yeah. bit of toxicity generates a reaction in the body where when you have a little bit of toxicity you generate high levels of antioxidants internally so we we know that um, a little bit of stress does that exercise exercise is incredibly stressful to the body mm -hmm. but if we don't do too much of it hormesis kicks in and the net effect is that you are stronger that you're mm -hmm. making more antioxidant enzymes in reaction 
to the toxic effects of stress. Mm-hmm. E- even being by the sea or by a waterfall, the, the, the tearing of water molecules generates free radicals, but in small amounts. And those free radicals, you inhale those, and those free radicals then will kick off things like superoxide dismutase in your mitochondria, and your mitochondria are energized. So you're, you're being energized by it. There's also the visual experience and being in, in that environment where um, you also generate um, reactions in your parasympathetic nervous system, and that will have a benefit too. But it's, it's lovely how these things occur, how what were toxic things through hormesis become things that propel us into, into deeper states of health and prolong our lives as well and i i just, I just love that about about being human i and love the do. idea that being water being near water can create <laughs> that that's a wonderful yeah. idea isn't it being near the sea or a waterfall now i've just got to go and find one <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all fun. and and just so you know i was equally stressed and excited about talking with you you know there are always those bits of wanting to chat with someone and you think oh my gosh this is going to be so exciting and and how can I even begin to start picking through the complexities of, of a beautiful organelle called the mitochondria and mm. in such a brief space of time. Mm. But, um, you know, but it, it really is wonderful just to start engaging the conversation because it's never just about one thing. It's always about a collective of things that make our body work. And mm. we know the mitochondria can't work on its own. It's got to have all these wonderful little friends to help it do its own little dance fandango. Yeah. So, um, Karen, is there anything, I, there's one thing I want to ask you, Ray, before we go, because it's been an hour. Is there anything else you'd like to ask Ray? There is just that one thing around um, the our sex hormone synthesis um, partly happening in the mitochondria um, and the connection with insulin resistance. So, you know, perhaps when you've got a PMS, for instance, and you're have, having these sugar cravings and you're overwhelming yourselves with too much, you know, overnutrition, um, how, and again, I know this isn't your area, but just thinking about it, how how much do you think as females, uh, where there's uh, estrogen dominance or estrogen excess is becoming quite a problem. How much do you think we really need to look at our intake of sugar as a um, as a measure against looking after our mitochondria and making sure that we're you know we're we're synthesising the right amounts of uh, estrogen and uh, sex hormones, um, which partly happens in our mitochondria. Yeah. So as you say, that the, the, <laughs> the first the, the first part of uh, steroid synthesis which are estrogen progesterone steroid hormones occurs in my mitochondria so uh, it's cholesterol import into mitochondria makes pregnenolone the, the mother steroid hormone so that that is a vital process and yeah excessive sugar um, will damage mitochondria it will lead to insulin resistance it, it, there's many different ways like j- just consuming excessive simple carbohydrates will cause mitochondria to become overwhelmed with NADH and that will push mitochondria beyond their capabilities and they will start to make more reactive oxygen species. So the last thing you want is um, say, whether it's, um, yeah, say in ovaries making uh, estrogen, you don't want mitochondria, which at the very start of that, providing the precursor to estrogen, you don't want mitochondria to be overwhelmed, making reactive oxygen species. You don't want that. 
insulin resistance. Yeah, the sugar is going to cause insulin resistance. So insulin, mustn't forget, it's a hormone. Insulin is a hormone. So the whole, just by having excessive sugar with insulin resistance, it's going to be endocrine disruption because uh, all the hormones work together and there'll be some imbalance in the way um, estrogen synthesized. I believe there's a, there'll be a shift towards more androgens that that estrogen may be pushed more towards testosterone and testosterone is incredibly important in the uh, follicular phase of the uh, menstrual cycle so if through excessive uh, sugar you imbalance estrogen uh, the, the estrogen testosterone kind of balance pushing up testosterone imbalancing the follicular phase and may lead to poor ovulation um, so that that that's a, a real issue and we, we do know that that um, with um, menstrual irregularities or uh, PMS, um, that seems to be mitochondrial issues that are linked to them too. And if 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 someone can deal with their blood sugar imbalances through eating a, a healthier diet, and and we definitely know this with PCOS as well, if the if blood sugar is um, dealt with, then there's there's a far um, less risk of PCOS interfering with with fertility. Interestingly, just going slight, slightly off, we know that women during their fertile years have twice the risk of depression compared to men. So from puberty right the way through to menopause, women have twice the risk of depression. Um, and it's it's thought that um, these this insulin resistance uh, that many women can get their hormones back into balance by eating a, a more balanced diet, dealing with insulin resistance, and that has a great impact on on mental health. It's um, interesting. Yeah. So it's really just getting your blood sugar levels back into balance. Get get the blood sugar levels back into balance. Yeah, and as you say, mitochondria are going to be involved there. They're there at the very start, making pregnenolone, being the mother hormone for for all the other steroid hormones, and that that insulin resistance caused by high blood sugar levels will, um, will first of all damage mitochondria, but, but also interfere with steroid hormones balance and, and really, and it, it, the, it's, it's, a, it's, again, it's amazing feat of ev evolution of fertility and to, and the sugar just gets right in there and just screws up that, that really delicate balance between, the, those two phases, the, the follicular phase and the luteal phase and ovulation, that sugar just gets in there and just stirs it up. Mm. Um, <laughs> so if you can explain that to, to women a bit more, that it kind of don't imagine that, because the, they just don't think about how insulin as a hormone from the sugar they're eating is having a direct impact on, on their fertility and, and their, their estrogens. Okay. I've started using um, a blood glucose monitor with many clients now. Um, and it's making a really big difference, teaching them how to eat in a way that um, helps to support better levels of blood glucose. Um, okay. And it's, yeah, it's just, I'm finding it really interesting. And it's yeah, really... Is that after a meal? You, give, you, you get them to test yeah. the blood glucose after a meal? Okay. Yeah, so what I do um, is get them to test before a meal, because if it's, if it's within a, if it's over a particular range, then 
generally they shouldn't be eating. And um, so I get, you know, it's about really training them to understand, well, actually, you're not hungry, because a, a part of what I do is, is around um, emotional eating. So it's about teaching women that, you know, if you're not hungry, don't eat. But, you know, if you if you use a blood glucose monitor, and you can see that, then wait until your levels have come down to a range where it's 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 okay for you to eat and then two hours after that meal again test to see how has that meal affected and impacted their blood sugar levels you know if, if it's a massively carbohydrate based diet um meal then it's about training them to start to eat in a way and and Good. you know compose their diets and their meals um, to help them balance their sugar levels is that, stop that spike is that a pinprick uh finger prick test you use yeah, yeah. it's just a meter pinprick meter yeah. Okay. I've I've got one of those, so I'll, it's motivated me to use it. All right. Thank you. It's re- it's really handy and it's very very um, uh, motivating because you you know they're doing it and they can see the impact of what uh, each meal does to their blood sugar levels. So it's just teaching them, especially I think with women, um, it's around you know getting more protein into the diet and 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 a lot more the sort of like non-starchy vegetables as opposed to these big plates of rice and potatoes, which really overwhelm um, their blood sugar levels and really spike it for longer than the two hours that we're kind of, that we're looking at. And I found that quite, quite interesting, quite useful and very motivating. Thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Um, Anything else, Karen? Have you got anything else you want to? I think that is me done. I've got, Ray, it's been amazing. I've been so like excited about this interview. It's brilliant. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Good. Well, Ray, what, I mean, you've, you've written your books, your teaching. Have you got anything else that you can share with us that you're, you're working on right now that you would like people to hear about that we can help you promote to, to the listeners? And then I have one last question. Um, I'm, I'm writing three webinars for pure encapsulations at the moment. So I'm, I'm, they're coming out in uh, June, July, August. Um, also there's a a band uh, seminar i think there's that i'm doing a little um, half an hour presentation on viral infection and mitochondria into into that um band uh, seminar uh, that's again that's for pure encapsulations um i'm i've rewritten the uh parkinson's alzheimer's dementia and ms lecture for cnm so right. uh, i've just finished that and I've, I've got to deliver that next month um, and I've, and I've just, um, it's, it's taken a while, but I've just had a paper accepted on, uh, COVID-19 and obesity, how they link together. That that's wow. being, that's being published in the Townsend letter in July. So, you know, the Townsend letter for doctors and patients, have you heard of that journal? No, no, I have not heard of that one. No, no. it's an American, <laughs> American magazine. All right. Um, so I, I just, uh, it, it's taken ages. I was rejected about six times from six different journals. <laughs> they wouldn't touch it, but luckily the, the Townsend letter have accepted it. So that, that's been quite an interesting journey. Congratulations. As well. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's really good. It's really good. That's not a small feat for sure. Yeah. Um, and what do you, I mean, you've talked about your um, water skiing. Mm. You've talked about, you get that ultimate, high and stuff from, from that which is exciting but what do you do to take care of yourself I mean you're doing a lot of things I mean you talk about for someone who's you know you're managing your chronic chronic fatigue and you say you know you you take care of yourself and you have to be focused on that but what do you do to take care of yourself the, one of the biggest things um 
I do. And I find is that it's the most relaxing and peaceful thing is uh, my partner and I, we, we have a, a cottage in Suffolk. That's where we live. You can see it. It's just behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's going to be audio only, but you can see it's, it's an old cottage and it's in the middle of the country. And uh, we just go for two or three hour walks whenever we can. So it's about four or five times a week. We'll go for two or three hour walks and we get the audience survey map out and just get lost in the wilderness. Um, so that, that's the, that's the biggest thing really do do some degree of other exercise for strength, but it's mainly that walking and and being in, in that peaceful countryside that, that enables me to just let go of everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a tonic for the soul. Yeah. It's really good to hear. Well, I guess for now, I mean, there, I haven't really even touched on half the things that I thought we might chat about and that's fine. That's part of the, the joy of these podcasts, but if you're okay for this for now, I think we'll say goodbye. But it's been absolutely fantastic to have an opportunity to start the conversation with you and learn more about what you're doing and why you do what you do. And um, thank you so much for sharing all the information with us as uh, students and practitioners. We all are. We all are yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. Thank and- you. Karen, thank you so much for being my co-host. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. And Ray, it's been wonderful chatting with you. It's been amazing. Thank you you both. Thank you. Well, until next time. Well, folks, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed sitting in and listening in to our conversation with Ray. What a fascinating man and so much information to share. The great thing is he has agreed to come back on the show in time. So we'll look forward to having more conversations with him about a variety of things as we did today. I'll be sure and provide links in the show notes. So if you're interested in any of the three books that he's written, as well as the paper, I'll be sure and provide his details so you can get in touch with him or follow him on the various social media platforms. I'll also provide details for you to get in touch with Karen. I'd like to thank her again for joining me on the show. I always enjoy having Karen on my podcasts. So then there are a few things I'd like to talk with you about and you've got it. One of them is going to be about that Bellican. You have got to bounce soft to feel good. So what would you like to ask me about the Bellican? Come on get in touch with me, send me a message, or go ahead and have a snoop around on the link in the show notes. I am so excited to be affiliated with this company. There are numerous benefits. Research continues to grow, showing the effectiveness of rebounding on your health and well-being. It not only builds strength, it also helps your mood too. And I'd also like to ask you, if you haven't done so already, to please subscribe to my podcasts and or leave me a review or pass this on and share it with others that you think might find them of benefit. I also have a great rota of people joining me over the next few months, so be sure and watch this space. But for now, I'd like to thank you for joining me. And until next time, here's wishing you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye.